Welcome to Sing for Science, the show where musicians and scientists talk about music and science. I'm your host, Matt White. Each week we'll talk about a song by our guest artist and how it connects with our guest scientist's area of expertise. Today's episode is the third in our Best Of series. With the help of our friend Bailey Constis, we'll be revisiting some of season two's best moments. Today we'll be covering the first half of the season with Sia, Lamb of God's Randy Bly, Jose Gonzalez, Debbie Harry and Chris Stein from Blondie, and Maja Jordan. So, first off, we have our episode with Sia. Now, this is a fun one. She is very well educated on the, the topic of choice here. That was attachment theory, um, which is quite in vogue. And um, well-versed in all the terminology that's associated with it. So she was really able to hold her own and often lead the conversation with Dr. Katahakis. Dr. Katahakis is by training, I guess, a sex therapist, or she, she treats sex addicts primarily, but the idea is that sex and love addiction can be connected to the trauma one may experience in our first years of life. Right. Sia cries in this episode, but the more I think about it, I don't know that I've ever heard an interview with her where she doesn't cry. <laughs> she feels quite deeply. She does. And I think she explains why she does in this episode. You know, we've all heard Sia, but we don't really know who Sia is. And I thought it was so brave and incredible how open she was about this. It's not an easy topic to talk about being abused as a child. And um, I was just so impressed by both of them in this conversation. Yeah. Or perhaps even equally courageous is how, not just talking about her past abuse, but how it manifests as an adult. And, you know, right. some of the things that come, come up for her as a grown woman. Yeah. And she does it with such grace and humor, um, mm -hmm. which really makes the conversation palatable because it is really intense. Um, and also, I think it's hilarious how, particularly this season, I don't think I've ever heard you mention Pantera more often. Oh, that's right. <laughs> There's like multiple, oh, multiple times where you mentioned Pantera this episode and in the I future know. episodes. That's true. <laughs> I got to stop doing that because those folks have really ended up on the wrong side of history. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's funny. Um, yeah, stay, st if, if you want to know what Bailey's talking about with respect to this episode, tune into the full length with Sia and hang until the very end and it will connect for you. So without further ado, let's listen to this one with Sia and Dr. Alexandra Katahakis. So the sympathetic system is excitatory, and that's our fight or flight system. And so when we're in danger, we're either going to fight or we're going to run. And that's designed for survival. And when children are abused in whatever way, whether it's neglect or abuse, they oftentimes don't have the opportunity to run or to fight back, which leads to you know, moderate to severe dissociation. If right now there was an earthquake, since we're all in California, mm -hmm. we wouldn't stop and think about or say to each other, do you think we should, like, should we end this conversation now? <laughs> we would just get up and run, right? <laughs> because that's how the organism is set up. 
If we're in too much distress, if the child's in too much distress, it's crying, nobody's coming to its aid over and over again, it's not being soothed, then eventually the crying stops because the parasympathetic system tries to downregulate the sympathetic system. And when it can't, there's a free state. And where there's a free state, you no longer have adrenaline and dopamine. Now you've got noradrenaline and you've got opioids washing in, which is an analgesic that prepares us to die. It's a cold limbic shutdown. Yes, that too. But autonomically, it is the parasympathetic and the vagal break shutting everything down. And if you think about being tortured, or if you're a cave person and you're on the savanna running and you're trying to outrun the lion and eventually, you know, it's catching you and you're out of breath and you can't run anymore, at some point you're going to freeze and those opioids wash in so that when it eats you, it's probably not as painful would be my guess. I've never had the experience, but I'm pretty sure that's how it works. That's, and, and our, yeah, go on. And the cortical unhooks, uncouples from the subcortical. So there's no thinking anymore. It's just, you're just in a purely animalistic state. It's so phenomenal because that's described exactly how it used to feel when I would text someone who had captured my projection. Mm-hmm. So someone that I was, uh, I had decided was going to be my romantic primary attachment partner, let's say. And if they weren't texting me back or I couldn't get a hold of them and my brain, because I didn't have that, like the, the caregiver coming. um, And I went into limbic, limbic shutdown so regularly that my adult body would experience the exact same feelings as the, as the infant and I would have all the same neurochemicals dump into my system. And I think, why do I feel like I'm dying? Oh, wow. And it was so fascinating to find out that that I, my body just would mimic the exact experience it had with this projection, this person who would captured my projection, and to realise, okay, I, I'm not crazy, I'm not sick, and, I mean, I have a, a attachment injury. This is called something called object constancy, which I learned about. Right. And maybe you could help people understand what that is because to understand what that was was so relieving because I thought, oh, I'm not, cra- I'm not a crazy person, a crazy girl. Right, and I think that's important is that... Um... You know, these are not just psychological issues. They are neurobiological constructs. You're not just a crazy girl. And because you didn't have consistent tending to as an infant and small child, that leaves for a very disorganized system internally uh, because we inherit our mother's nervous systems, essentially, because she's downloading her nervous system into that infant in utero in the third trimester. If you've got a mother that's stressed out or anxious or depressed or being beat, all of that neurochemistry is activated in her body. And there is an intersubjective communication between mother and infant that's neurochemical at that point. So when that baby's born, it's a wash in those neurochemicals. And then her capacity to be able to take care of or regulate that infant is what is being transmitted to the infant. So there are our genetics and then our epigenetics, which is um, the impact of the environment on the genes. So, and those genes will express depending on what the environment is doing in that moment. 
So when you think about an environment for the evolution of a secure baby, you need a high level of synchronization between the mother and the infant, right? Eye contact, Achievement. right? The tone of her voice, touch, gesture, all of that is the nonverbal conversation taking place between the two. And if she's not exquisitely attuned to that infant, there are going to be problems because the, the infant requires that in order to start to come to fruition, so a lack of a capacity to feel alive where there's no safe place is what I think you were talking about, Sia. And because there was no safe face, there was no safe other there for you consistently. It was inconsistent. It was. Um, my mother suffered from postnatal depression. So it, actually, mm. my father was my primary caregiver, uh, which is a very unusual, I've, I've heard. But I mean, the fact is, is that she was so so sick with depression that she couldn't even she couldn't be good wow. enough yeah so dad had to step in and i mean my dad was psychotic <laughs> so and i say that laughingly but, but is he, that true was, was he really yeah, oh, yeah. Okay. so it was terrifying of course now i now i can see when i have communicated with him as an adult i'm like i can only imagine what that was like for an infant yeah, well, impossible because what really happens? Really scary. There's, yeah, there's a pervasive and chronic sense of non-being. There mm-hmm. is no self able to develop there because you've got an empty self that's matching that infant, and the core self is formed in these early, early months. And without that core self being formed, you're going to get into trouble, and that is comprised of you know the amygdala first as you said, and then it moves up to the insula, the cingulate, and the right orbital frontal. But that core self is crucial to stability, and it's only later that a subjective self starts to form, really, again, around the nine-month period, where I have a sense of myself in relation to other. But as an infant, there's none of that. To what degree is an infant a blank slate? I would say it's largely completely a blank slate. And so the argument about about is it nature or is it nurture, I think has long been solved that it's both. And, and, you know, every child is, has a different disposition. Again, we have different genetics, but if I'm genetically predisposed to something that's a weakness, but I've got a caregiver that can circumvent that somehow, I'll probably be okay. Okay. One thing that I heard Who's the guru in this field? Um, Which field? Dan Brown? No. um, God damn it. Uh, He's from Eastern Europe. Oh, Um, Gabor Mate? Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's not. He's He's the guru in the field of addiction. Okay, okay. He was saying that there's no identifiable gene for mental illness. Is that true? Yeah, I don't know about that. I just know that. These early communications are the core of all psychopathology. Mm. And so, again, if somebody has a predisposition, let's say, to schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, if they have a contingently appropriately attuning parent, they may not have as much difficulty in that area. Or if it's strictly a genetic situation, they will. 
But I think it's hard to generalize those things. And when does the window of opportunity shut for a parent, you know, about when you can still shape these things? Well, I think Dan Siegel talks about this in his book, Brainstorm, right? You know, he talks about the teen years. But when we're talking about, you know, these early infantile structures, the right brain is developing for the first 18 months. And those 18 months are crucial. And that's why it's so disturbing that the United States of America, which is supposedly one of the number one industrialized countries in the world, has no maternal care, no maternity leave, no maternal care whatsoever. We have people dumping infants two, three months old into daycare with multiple caregivers. I mean, it's just, it's actually criminal what we do to our children in this country and our mothers. And that's one of the main reasons we have this slipping and secure attachment is because we don't have support for mothers and fathers. I mean, even in France, the fathers get, I think, three months paternity leave. Yeah. Right. And they provide them with, you know, bus passes and yeah. you know, help. All in the way Iceland, around. they get six. Ima yeah. Imagine that. <laughs> well, all right. Next up, this is a really cool episode. And I think this next one with Randy Bly, the dreadlocked singer of Lamb of God, and Tony Lemieux, who is a social psychologist. I think this episode turned out to be one of the more representative of the series as a whole, in my opinion. And what's cool is that uh, Dr. Lemieux actually had reached out to me. He's a big metal fan. And he had pitched this episode. And Randy jumped enthusiastically at the opportunity to participate. They both had such cool things to say, and it's just so pertinent to everything that's going on, talking about intergroup conflict and toxic culture wars in this country and how we identify as us and them rather than you and me. Um, I've seen many a photograph since of Randy live in concert sporting a Sing for Science t-shirt. Oh, that is so cool. Yeah. I think what's really great about this episode is that, well, you once again referenced Pantera in this episode. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so fascinated with adolescence and music and youth culture. And I think that both of them in this discussion make that such a valid experience and mm -hmm. how those times in our lives are so important to who we become later. And just hearing Randy talk about his experience with the Sex Pistols, mm. I, it makes him so relatable and like he's not just this kind of well-known person. Like he was a teenager. He He's had these feelings yeah. and that was really cool to hear. I'm glad you bring that up for personal reasons as a father because it's easy to forget how much we identify with with media in general. And they, they really put a name to it and, and are able to talk about it in a very compelling way, these two. Okay, Dr. Tony Lemieux and Randy Bly from Lamb of God. In the sort of adolescent years, we find you see music, you see kind of a lens to the world. And I think, you know, with different artists and the performers, you're kind of learning and distilling something. And so 
you have this sort of awareness that you build and there's sort of developmental windows where that's more acute. And for some people that kind of last longer, but for many people that sort of music that they identify with in their sort of adolescent years into their early to mid twenties really stays with them where they're like, it's like you imprint, you know, yeah. and it's like, that's the stuff that you really can, you can always come back to. You might find new stuff you like, but you always go back to that sweet spot. And then we make sometimes some inferences about people based on what they like or what they listen to. So I think there's a sort of implicit sense that there's something that those musical preferences might identify about somebody. Um, yeah. When I was 11 or 12 years old, I heard the Sex Pistols for the first time, and that completely changed my life because I felt socially ostracized where I was. Um, I lived in a little tiny town. I didn't have much money. I was a weirdo, you know, just a nerdy guy. And someone gave me a, a copy of Nevermind the Bollocks by the Sex Pistols when I was in like seventh grade. And it was the sound of my alienation. <laughs> you know, one thing I've always been curious about, I, <clears throat> and because Lamb of God has gone on to have such great success, I, your fan base is, is big enough that it probably contains a good enough a cross-section so that there are people included in there who, if you had been joined with them in a different chapter, they may have been the very people you felt alienated from. Oh, yes. You know, 100%. <laughs> I have always wanted to know, like, what's it like if you meet a Lamb of God fan where you just kind of right off the bat, you're like, yeah, this person is the asshole that made me feel like I was on the outside looking in. Uh, I mean, really, that doesn't happen that often. I don't know if that's because I don't meet these people in a regular social setting most of the time, you know, where they're with their peer group and I don't see how they behave. Most of the time when you meet a fan, they're just happy to meet you, you know, you, you can see it in, in their face. So, and also as I get older, I try and try and try not to judge people by immediate impressions or external appearances as much yeah. as possible because I hated that. And when I do that, uh, I recognize the hypocrisy of it, you know, and, and I mm -hmm. don't really like being a hypocrite. So I try not to do that that much. But, it, you know, it's it's something I've certainly uh, reflected on a few times. It's just like generally, I mean, I we have fans. So we, we I've met some really crazily diverse fans. And I yeah. think that is sort of continuing now. Um, I think the diversity issues is, is increasing. So I, I'm not going to say you were the guy who would have beaten me up in high school if I meet this guy, you know? Yeah. I'm a grown-ass man. I, I don't know his story, you know? So I have to be open-minded to people. And and that's a beautiful thing. I mean, I, I think that music is is so inclusive. And, and I, I need to emphasize that that is a question that I've wanted to ask for, I guess, 20 years because when I when I got to high school when I arrived as a freshman there were these clearly defined social boundaries illustrated by where people sat and who they sat with and the table where the metal fans sat couldn't have been more easily labeled as as outcast you know mm -hmm. it was like on the outermost section of where the tables were and they dressed and looked the part and there was a kid in my class whose older brother was a star on the football team and and was embraced as you might think a, a kid in the suburbs in the early 90s would be who was a football star. And at any rate, the kid in my class told me that his brother 
used to listen to Pantera in the locker room to get pumped up before the football game. And, and it, that really chapped my hide. I was like, no, you know, you don't get to enjoy the fruits of the disenfranchise and also get the popularity and all the trimmings that come with it, you know, and he took your music. <laughs> well, it's kind of like a, uh, a narrow-minded teenage sensibility that wanted to ask you that question. And That's why when you, you're in an underground band and you develop a fan base and then when you get bigger and more and more people show up, sometimes the original fans, it's very, uh, it's, a, it's a very childish mentality. But if you get bigger and bigger, uh, sometimes people will be like, they have this reaction as soon mm -hmm. as you do well. And I've certainly seen it uh, with my band and other bands before. It's just this sort of... Um, this sense of possession, like, mm -hmm. like, you know, these people can't listen to my band. And then once you get bigger, it's like my band is ruined and they just write you off. I'll only ever listen to the first record or whatever, you know, and that's ludicrous. You know, yeah. I have no choice over who, who listens to my music. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it's a good problem to have. Yeah. Um, while we're talking about this whole us versus them thing that comes up in the lyrics and also when it comes to identity with music and, Tony, I get the feeling that that's really central to your research. Could you talk about how that is exploited? And well, I think yeah, going back to the sort of us versus them theme, and and picking up a little bit of that thread about being a fan and sort of which groups and social circles you fit in. When you start to see that sort of the more expansive sense of identity, that's like the the, the kind of ideal side of what music can do, right? Builds that yes. sense of community, like you're there, like we are all part of this group. And what I got fascinated by with the way that music is used sort of on the flip side, you see that hate rock is a sort of a concern. You see that with different terrorist groups and sort of the bad actors use of music to kind of catalyze identity and action too. Mm -hmm. And so with the good and the, the positive aspects of forging the identity, which we've been kind of talking about a bit, there's that other side where it's sort of used by bad actors. And and that's where I think there's still a question as to how important a role it, it can play and does play. But we certainly know that in the context of like uh, terrorist groups, for instance, it is something they've attended to and used deliberately to build that sense of identity mm -hmm. and emotional connection. Yeah, I for one just know the the power of the feeling of community in music just from playing shows mm -hmm. playing live is is a massive massive form of energy exchange that it's really hard to uh, explain to someone who if you haven't been on stage in front of a few thousand people it's hard to to sort of explain that that feeling but mm -hmm. it's really intense that's why the better a crowd is, oftentimes, the more energy a, a band will put out. So yeah. there's this feeling at, it, at its best and most sublime moments, there's a f huge feeling I get on stage of, of just unity and oneness with the audience. You know, um, the line between us and them blurs and disappears because I'm singing and then they're singing these words back that I wrote in a cheap spiral brown notebook in, you know, my garage. Uh, and it's in, it's a crazy feeling, you know, it, it's wild, but it gives you this, uh, feeling of well-being. Okay. So next one, this is cool. Jose Gonzalez, this one, they came to us because Jose, Jose actually was pursuing a PhD in 
infectious diseases, I guess. And uh, then his career took off, and he too was very much able to hold his own with Dr. Mike Osterholm, who probably second to Fauci was, you know, one of the most prominent voices during COVID. So it was pretty cool that that Dr. Osterholm was, you know, made time to do this. And interestingly enough, um, this episode was actually recorded in two parts. We had recorded it in June of 21, and I kept pushing the season release date back, and Jose was concerned about the information becoming irrelevant. Um, like a good scientist would be thinking about. <laughs> exactly. And he was right, because when we record this in June 21, it was it was this brief window when the vaccine had come out. A lot of us were vaccinated and we were thought we were out of the woods. Turned out not to have been the case. So we recorded it kind of as Omicron was peaking. And there was a noticeable difference in Mike's demeanor. You know, he went from one of ebullience to one of just being kind of dejected. Yeah, and, seriously. Um, didn't you interview Jose Gonzalez? Yeah, I think I interviewed him for my college newspaper. And I think we talked about like the cosmos and it's just like these really big things out there. And mm. I loved it. Yeah, what a smart guy. Well, that's cool. I'd like to dig that up. Okay. Here we go. Jose Gonzalez and Dr. Mike Osterholm. By, by having uh, studied biochemistry and viruses, uh, biochemistry, five years, and bi uh, viruses, just one year, I think I can uh, handle much of the details. But of course, there's <laughs> huge areas of, <laughs> what do you say, the, the opposite of knowledge. <laughs> so I've, I've had, it was 20 years ago that I studied. So a lot of it has changed, and of course, I didn't learn that much that you can learn. But it, it did make make it super interesting when the around February March in 2020, the pandemic was yep. started to get noticed. I just spent one or two months delaying my album just to read and listen to to experts, mm. as yeah. I'm sure many people did as they were in their homes, especially in in countries where they had lockdowns. Mm -hmm. But, but yeah, so I'm looking forward to to talk to you, Mike, and and hear what you have to say. I, I listened to your um, podcast, the update. So I'm I'm really looking forward to to hear more. <laughs> Thank you. Well, Mike, how would you best describe your role as both scientist and public figure during the coronavirus pandemic? Well, first of all, let me just begin by saying what an honor it is to be here. And I have to tell you, Jose, I've had more people ask me if I have done this particular session with you yet, then have asked if I've met the president of the United States. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> you have many, many fans in my world, in my spin out there. Oh, so, wow. uh, mm -hmm. and, and rightfully so deserved. In terms of uh, your question, Matt, you know, I've been thinking about pandemics for a long time. <laughs> I've written about them. My 2017 book, Deadliest Enemies, predicted pandemics would be coming they would last a, a substantial period of time. They would inflict pain, suffering, and death, unlike where I had previously experienced. And uh, that's not ever a good message that people want to hear. So it's easy to block it out. And in fact, I think one of the telltale moments of my uh, early days in the pandemic was on March 10th of 2020. I was actually on the Joe Rogan podcast that day talking about this issue. And I said that we easily could see 480,000 deaths in the United States and that this could last more than 18 months. 
And you can't know the blowback I got at that point. You know, somebody who was just scaring the hell out of people needlessly. They're just, you know, this was not going to happen. And of course, you now know, I obviously underestimated the impact. To a certain extent, you know, it's understandable because no one had a frame of reference for this. It had not happened in anyone's lifetime. However, you saw this coming in 2005. You saw yeah. this, you talked about it in your book at great length in 2017. So what did you see in the data that tipped you off that this was going to happen? You know, it'd be like if I asked you, if an apple comes loose from a tree, which way is it going to go? Mm-hmm. You'd say, well, down. And I'd say, where's your data? You know, and you'd say, well, I don't have any data. It's gravity, you know? I think just in understanding pandemics and the historic nature of them through all of time, it was just inevitable. We're going to see more. And so that the challenge is now we have it overlaid on a modern world with all of its interlinked supply chains and crowded megacities and lack of adequate health care in so many parts of the world. So in some ways, all I did is took a proposition that was equally you know, true 200 years ago and put it into a modern world context and said, this is what we're going to be up against. Um, a good example would be if that apple falls from the tree in a very calm day, you could predict where it's going. On the other hand, if that apple falls off the tree in a Category 5 hurricane, mm-hmm. you're not sure where it's going to land. But you know it's going to land eventually. You know, if, if we're to understand that a virus's evolution is seemingly random, how has COVID behaved as a virus that you found surprising? Well, when you look at evolution, you can say it's random, but it's really not. It's exactly what Jose was talking about earlier, how you connect all these things together. And then there's the big questions. But evolution's been working since the very first chemicals on the face of what was this emerging Earth started to combine together and then they formed uh, other chemicals. And I think that ultimately they formed life. And then life became much more complicated through all of the history. And I think sometimes that's hard to imagine that life began many, 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 many years before the Grand Canyon was ever begun to be formed. And so evolution is the powerful driver here. You might say it's like gravity. If you had to think of two things in the world right now that really drive us, it's, it's gravity and it's evolution. And uh, so I think in that regard, it's doing what it does. It's done in a very short period of time. We're talking 18 to 24 months when we're talking about from a standpoint of the Earth's history. That, that's not even one pebble of sand on a huge, huge beach in time, what's happened so far. But it also shows what microbes can do quickly. You know, you and I talk about a generation of 20 years to 30 years between generations. With microbes, we talk about differences between generation of 20 to 30 minutes. And so they are able to adapt. They're able to mutate. That in many cases is a flaw. It's fatal. It's not to their advantage and they die off. And that's exactly what these variants are. Um, You know, these have been mutated viruses that because they don't have the same machinery to reproduce themselves with the accuracy that, say, human cells can, which even then we still have challenges. That's called cancer. The issue is, is that all they have to do is have some successful ones that actually give them some advantage. I have a question now that we're in Omicron times. I was wondering if this will shorten the amount of time that we will have with this pandemic in uh, thinking about the people who don't want to take uh, vaccines and this will sort of boost their immune systems. Yeah, this is one of the really big challenges of predicting the 
days ahead with this pandemic. Number one is surely Omicron itself as a surge of cases around the world will probably be short-lived the next three to six weeks, and we'll see case numbers drop precipitously. The challenge is what happens after that. And it won't go away. It'll stay around. How many cases will occur is unclear. I think the really big challenge is what's the next variant. There could easily be a variant that could develop that is much more evasive to the current immunity from our vaccines and from Omicron and Delta. If that were to happen, it'd be kind of like starting the clock all over again. Mm. So that's what we don't know. And that's obviously not what anybody wants to hear. But the reality is, if you look back a year ago today, at that time, we had Alpha had emerged out of the United Kingdom. Beta and Gamma were coming out of South Africa and South America. And people were saying, oh, but never mind, it's going to be over with. And then we saw what happened with Delta showed up and now Omicron. And the big question is, what's the next one? And I think it will happen. There will be a next one. It could be milder and could be the fact that current vaccine immunity and previous infection immunity will protect you. We just don't know. Mm -hmm. I mean, Omicron is, in fact, causing more mild illness, right? It is. But the proportion of people having severe illness is lower. But the numbers are so much larger of who's getting infected that we're still offsetting healthcare. I mean, right now on our East Coast, our healthcare system's in, in break mode. Is there anything to suggest that because the infections are, are more mild with this variant, that that suggests that that will continue to happen? It will we get, don't know that. You don't? We don't know that. That's the problem. Could turn out that if you evade immune protection, they could be really very severe again. I mean, one of the reasons why we're seeing the limited number of severe illnesses per population is the fact that people have pre-existing immunity that is surely having some positive impact on that disease picture. Uh, we don't know that the next variant would necessarily make that have that same thing happen. Now, this one is with one of Sing for Science's bigger celebrity participants, Debbie Harry and uh, Blondie's co-founder, Chris Stein. They came on to talk with Michael Mann, who is a very well-known climatologist. Leonardo DiCaprio has revealed that his character in Don't Look Up was based on Dr. Mann. Really? Yeah, and so he's well-known for having, in the late 90s, sounded the climate alarm. Debbie and Chris were good sports to participate. They really This song really had absolutely nothing to do with climate change, but... <laughs> It was cool to get them on. It was so cool to hear them talking together, too. Yeah, kind of bickering. I mean, they really are an old couple. Yeah. <laughs> I, I feel like this season of Sing for Science was sort of the opposite of doom scrolling. So many of these topics are so overwhelming and to the point where you're like, I just I can't even understand what I need to do about any of this. Particularly in this episode, I thought they did a great job of addressing individual responsibility versus societal responsibility and how we have to not let those larger systems not take responsibility and put all of it on us as individuals. Mm -hmm. What is the phrase that Dr. Mann coined that you just made me think of? Uh, climate porn doom scrolling? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think that is what he said. Okay. Take it away, Blondie and Dr. Mann. I was at something in London uh, a couple of years ago 
And Vivian Westwood, the designer, is adamant climate uh, control person. And uh, you probably don't know her, but she's, you know, she's a, a formidable personality. And uh, she's been going on about this for a while. And at that point, she, she was so concerned that she thought that there really was no way to reverse at this point, you know, that it would be nearly impossible to reverse the damage. Yeah, we can't reverse it at this point. A lot of what we're seeing, the catastrophes we're seeing play out in real time now in the form of these unprecedented wildfires and floods. Um, and, and in New York, you know, not far, far from New York City, which just saw its worst uh, flooding event on record recently with uh, Ida, with that uh, storm as it made its way through. Yeah. We've got to get off fossil fuels. We've got to bring them down, our carbon emissions down by 50% within a decade. Mm-hmm. It's a monumental task, but it's doable. It isn't physically impossible. It's just a matter of political will, having the political will to act and using our voices to put pressure on politicians so that they do act. You know, with all this stuff, I keep seeing the socio-political aspects, which are that every fucking event that goes on now is politicized. And to me, the politicization of the virus is the most screwed up thing I've ever witnessed, you know, and I've seen a lot of screwed up stuff and it's just, it's so crazy that this has become uh, some kind of push pull between sides. And in the same, in the same sense to see, you know, climate change, the environment, plastic in the oceans, all this stuff is considered multi-level thing, you know, that has two sides, you know, the fact that these events are considered by many people to have a positive and a negative rather than just being all negative, yeah. which is, which seems to me the rational view. It, it's very screwed up and I don't know how to get around that. And the internet, all this disinformation floating yeah. out in the world doesn't seem to help. You know, I, I still am seeing people writing the craziest stuff on Twitter. You know, my, my friend is in the ventil in the ventilator and if only he could get the horse paste, he'd be fine. And people, people are still believing and buying into this madness. Well, you know, Chris, a few months ago, I wrote a, an op-ed, a commentary for, for Newsweek, the title of which was, Anthony Fauci, We Climate Scientists Feel Your Pain. Uh, because it's the same thing. Just as you say, it's the same thing. It's the weaponization of ignorance by special <clears throat> interests and people with an ideological agenda and who loses out, all of us. Right, we do. Did you see that meme at the beginning of coronavirus that it had a picture of the of planet earth and it said uh climate science needs to hire coronavirus's publicist <laughs> <laughs> no but yeah right I yeah. Get it, yeah. why can't everybody just not drive on the weekend well i think they did that in COVID. would that make a dent well, what if nobody drove on sunday yeah. individual behavioral change is part of it we all should try to be part of the solution makes us feel better, makes a difference. It it makes us healthier to bike more, uh, drive less. We should all do those things. But what we can't allow is for the special interest, the polluters to convince us that it's all on us as individuals because we need systemic change. We need policies that will move us off fossil fuels and we need politicians who are willing to support those policies. And in my book, I, I really emphasize the duality. It's both, it's individual behavior, but we can't do it alone. We need politicians who are going to help us through this dramatic transition that we need to go through. And the central piece in your estimation is carbon pricing, right? Yeah, I was going to say, could you just define 
carbon pricing simply? Yeah. <clears throat> so carbon pricing is one mechanism. Actually, as it turns out, you know, you put a price on carbon, a carbon tax or cap and trade. We've heard a lot about that. So you level the playing field because, look, when you burn carbon, you're dumping pollution into the atmosphere. You're hurting the planet. And why should polluters be allowed to do that at no cost? So the idea here is you level the playing field so that renewable energy that isn't destroying the planet can compete fairly in the marketplace. That's all it's asking for. Because if it can compete fairly, if it doesn't cost more to purchase electricity from a source that isn't hurting the planet, then people will make the right choice. We have to make it easy for people to make a planet-friendly choice. And How do you get away from these weird associations of the Green New Deal with putting people in gulags or whatever? <laughs> You know, I mean, that's that's where it goes. It quickly runs to this crazy other side. Right. Well, you know, the other side has been very effective. Climate opponents, conservatives, uh, fossil fuel interest groups, the front groups that they fund have been very effective in their messaging, making any effort to do something healthy for the planet sound like it's an imposition on people's liberty. It sort mm -hmm. of, they play to sort of the red meat of the conservative base by throwing words, you know, they're going to take away your hamburgers. They're not going to allow you to fly to see grandma during the holidays. It's a fear tactic mm. that yeah. obviously distorts the choices that mm -hmm. we're making, but it's intended to sort of draw upon that reptilian part of mm -hmm. our brain. Ah. And that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to animate you know, their base um, uh, so that they, 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 they become an obstacle to meaningful progress. In your, in your book, you talk about how that actually ends up being a divisive among climate activists. I think that's important to get out there. Yeah, we have to be careful because, um, and Chris, you, you alluded to this earlier. I, I thought you laid it out so clearly. They've weaponized social media and they're using bot armies and when I say they, I'm talking about fossil fuel interests, polluters, right-wing groups, dark money, Koch brothers-funded groups, for example. But I'm also talking about some bad state actors. Russia has, has not played a constructive role here, and they've used bots to try to sabotage climate action because they see themselves actually as benefiting if we don't do something about climate change. Vladimir Putin does. Well, they're all about the oil pipelines and all that stuff. Yeah, there was a half trillion dollar oil deal between Russia and the United States that was at the heart of why they wanted Trump to be president. So he would approve. Yeah, 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 yeah. But ultimately, if I'm, you know, saying, hey, you're not vegan and you're saying, oh, well, you know, you you travel 30,000 miles a year on airplanes. Right. Ultimately, that kind of dilutes our force and we can't unify and appeal for stronger policy change. Yeah, that's right. I mean, and, you know, it would be great for us to be more responsible. And, you know, if you drive a vehicle, an electric vehicle has a much lower carbon footprint. And if you can use public transportation, that's great. And if you can do less travel, less recreational flying on vacations, all of those things help. But in the end, the problem is that we won't see the reductions in carbon emissions that are necessary unless we decarbonize our infrastructure. And we're only going to do that through policies, through governmental mm -hmm. policies. So let's not create animosity with, with our allies, climate advocates, progressives, people who are on board, who want to do something about the problem. These bad actors that I was referring to use social media to get us arguing with each other, to get us finger pointing. Oh, if you're not a vegan, then you don't really care about the climate. Oh, if you had children, then you don't really care about the climate. If you fly, you don't really care about the climate because then it devolves into a shouting match. It divides the community of climate advocates so that we don't speak 
with a united voice demanding action. And who wins? The polluters. And that's why they're playing that game. And so beware of that. Be aware of the way that social media is being used, is being weaponized to pit us against each other. Don't take the bait and recognize that there are these underhanded tactics. Look, here's the problem for polluters. They can't deny climate change is happening anymore because it's starting to look sort of like the apocalypse that that you guys sang about, you know, um, in, in rapture. We're seeing devastating climate impacts now. So they can't deny it's happening. So they've turned to these other tactics to try to prevent us from acting. Division, deflection, etc. We need to reassess what the apocalypse is. Our buddy William Gibson, the writer, you know, the great writer who invented the phrase cyberspace, he describes the apocalypse as what he terms the jackpot, as something that takes 50 years. It's not an overnight event. It's not you wake up the next day and all the men are dead, like I just saw on a TV show last night, you know? That's one solution. That could help. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, to be perfectly honest, the political leaders who have done the most are people like uh, Jacinda Ahern of of New Zealand and uh, Angela Merkel of Germany. So we have seen far more leadership from women politicians. And that that's relevant here. Maybe we need a little less testosterone in our political system. All right. Last up for this installment of our best of series is Majid Jordan. This episode is unique because Majid Al-Muscati is uh, from Bahrain. I don't know that we've had another artist from the Middle East on the show. And so we were speaking with Jacques Cousteau's grandson, Fabien Cousteau. So we talked a lot about the ocean around Bahrain. And um, this episode was somewhat of a platform for Fabian to talk about his latest project, which is called Proteus. He's developing this gazillion dollar underwater research station. It's all very sci-fi and it kind of picks up where his grandfather's work left off. There's some great movies from the sixties about these underwater research stations that Jacques Cousteau had built. There's a lot of interesting drama surrounding the Cousteau family. I don't know if you're aware of it, but give um, me some tea. What's tea mean? You know, if you're having tea with someone, you're like sharing gossip. Something. I've never heard that expression. Sharing some drama. Yeah, well, I think he had many heirs. They're all involved, if not directly, somehow tangentially to underwater exploits of one variety or another, and they um, they're kind of legally limited in how much association they can claim with Jacques' legacy. It's kind of a bummer. Interesting. Um, yeah. It's it's a bummer because he's arguably, you know, one of the most important conservationists of the last century. And people have pointed out to me, you know, he wasn't a scientist, but I don't really think that that matters. I mean, he was the first one to capture the world's attention and bring it underwater and reveal all of the magic that's hidden. It's such a great example of like a non-scientist trying to tackle a problem and leaving such a legacy behind that, you know, now we get to talk to his grandson and he's just trying to honor that. Yeah, pretty cool. Okay, so here we go. Majid Jordan and Fabian Cousteau. My uncle, my uncle would love to meet you, Fabian. He's actually like one of the lead conservationists on the island. And so, you know, he was, he's written books on animals, on land and in the sea. 
Like if I show him a bird, you know, he's like, yeah, this migrated from here to here and because it's warm. And if I show him like anything in the sea, he'll let me know like the type of plant life, the aquatic like uh, uh, animals that come through that stay there. There's dolphins and it's it, like uh, to have you come over to Bahrain would be <laughs> so insane. So crazy. Uh, Bahrain uh, is just located in such a beautiful spot. And the fact that the Persian Gulf itself has some life and some vibrancy and so unknown, especially for the Western cultures or, or mm -hmm. what we call Western cultures, so Europe and, and mostly North America. You know, your story of, the, of being with the, the fishermen and just enjoying uh, going out into the water as a free diver and as a, as a diver, being able to see what's down there and the coral growing on some of the, uh, the plain, for example, that was used as an artificial reef and all that. It just goes to show that that there's a lot of life that's there, and if you give it uh, a chance, it will breed rebirth, uh, and therefore it becomes this fireworks display of life. And uh, I could see why you were influenced <laughs> by by the ocean with uh, with the latest song. It's just it's a romance, you know. Mm. It, it becomes this uh, this relationship that becomes lifelong. Yeah. Ever wondered which animals can breathe through their butts? Or what chainsaws have to do with human childbirth? The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week, a podcast from Popular Science Magazine, is here to help you take a deep dive into these tales and literally hundreds more. Join Rachel Feltman and the rest of the PopSci crew as they compete to share the most shocking, hilarious, enlightening, and most importantly, weirdest stories they can find from the history of science, technology, medicine, and more. You can listen to The Weirdest Thing I Learned this week wherever you get your podcasts right now. And what's so cool about all of us speaking together is that in many ways, uh, Fabienne, what you're doing with Proteus is building on the legacy of your grandfather's work with the conch shelf experiment, which was in the Red Sea, right? Yeah, so uh, conch shelf two. No, there were three uh, underwater habitats that my grandfather and his team experimented with over the, the years in the early 1960s. Back in the infancy, as a matter of fact, conch shelf one is arguably the first underwater habitat mm. uh, in existence. And uh, it was all about man's relationship to the sea if we can live underwater for extended periods of time, what does that do to us physiologically, uh, if anything? And what can we learn from the sea by being on that final frontier? The Conch Shelf 2, which was maybe the most famous underwater habitat because of its being the, the protagonist in The World Without Sun, mm. which was an Oscar award-winning movie that my grandfather had, had done uh, back in those days really highlighted the amazing mysteries of the undersea world and our being aliens in that world, our really going there for the first time, a little bit like landing on the moon or in the future, maybe colonizing Mars, and the value of an underwater habitat. Proteus builds a bit on the lineage of past pioneers, building uh, underwater structures to explore the undersea world as a fish, so to speak, to be able to be uh, saturated, if you will, so that we could have that extended period of time to have that experience, to really dance with nature and be able to, to come back and hopefully inspire others through the knowledge that we've gained from that experience. Proteus is really going to be the International Space Station of the Ocean. Wow. wow. And can you tell us about it, um, what it looks like inside and out? I mean, I've 
I've seen the mock-ups of it. It's, it's so stunning. But I want to know, because I'm sure at this point you have a very three-dimensional understanding of an immersive one of what it's going to be like. Could you describe it for us? Sure, sure. I, I'm still, thankfully, a little too young to have experienced the first habitats, con shelf and all mm -hmm. that. But I did get a chance to go to the last remaining undersea marine laboratory called Aquarius, where I took a team for 31 days. So I, it gave me an appreciation of the, the possibilities and also the limitations of a structure that was built in the 1980s. And so with that in mind, designing a state-of-the-art undersea marine habitat became um, uh, not only uh, an homage to all the exploits of the past, but also trying to tackle all of the frustrations and limitations that they had to confront so that we could look forward. And with that in mind, building something 10 times the size of any previous habitat was paramount so that we could house it with multiple state-of-the-art marine laboratories, groups of researchers that are not two, four, or six people big, but twice that much, 12 or more, and not for days or maybe weeks, but weeks, months, and maybe longer, so that we can really push the envelope and we can really leverage that coefficiency of time of being at the bottom of the sea. Now, yes, we can send ROVs and AUVs and uh, you know, submersibles, the divers from the surface and all that, and it's not meant to replace any of that. As a matter of fact, if anything, Proteus is the missing tool in the toolbox. But just like any tool, there was a very big void there since we don't have anything comparable except in space. Mm. And if we look at the value of what ocean brings us, and of course, for all the wonders that it brings, those intangibles, the things that make us dream, both the megafauna, like large animals, like the, the blue whale, to the microcosmic, you know, the phytoplankton, and the mantis shrimp and octopus battles, all those things are things that we can bring to the general public, both on a, a platform of knowledge, so that we can look at, for example, uh, microbiology and chemistry, so we can battle pandemics like what we're doing right now with COVID in ways that are much more in pace with the pace of life today. But also, we can bring stories we can bring the highlights, the highlight reel, if you will, of the connection of human beings in ocean, that human-ocean connection, for those who may never get a chance to swim in the ocean. So when you just mentioned COVID, how does the pharmacological connection work? Like marine research that you can conduct, how are you able to turn that into medicine? Well, the simplest example is something that we all know very much is the chemical compositions that we are able to extract around the world on land, right? Uh, the uh, Amazon rainforest is a, is a great example, for, for example. There are tens, if not hundreds of millions of compounds that are extracted from various flora and fauna that are then brought to labs as a DNA encyclopedia, if you will. And so... With that, a certain chemical compositions are used for certain things. If you look at the, the components of vaccines, you'll see that there are a lot of components that are derived from natural resources. And a lot of times people spend months, if not years, in laboratories playing with those chemical compositions to see how they can be used for solution building, whether it's a viral pandemic or vitamins or, or some other aspect. Those chemical compositions are invaluable for us to create 
solutions to problems that, that arise, especially in the case of things like a pandemic. In the ocean, it's vastly untapped. There are maybe 30 or 40,000 chemical compositions that have been deciphered from things like sponges and small animals and things like that. I can give you a few that have actually made it to market. Uh, for example, uh, deep water sponge chemical composition was used in a, a targeted chemotherapy for leukemia. Another chemical composition from a, the venom of a cone snail, cone snail being the most venomous organism on the planet, uh, is now being used to combat chronic pain, ex extreme chronic pain. Really? It's a thousand times more powerful than morphine without the side effects. But you have to administer it in a hospital. You know, and, and there are other examples like this, but we're just scratching the surface because we've explored less than 5% of our ocean world to date. So imagine that Pandora's box of solutions that are awaiting us out there. That is stunning. So the, the cone snails that we said? Yep. Does it act like an, an opiate? It's just not addictive? Correct. Correct. So it's, it's not addictive at all. Uh, and and the, way they, uh, the way they describe it to me, I'm, I'm certainly no chemical biologist, uh, is that the venom itself is uh, deciphered, décortiqué uh, in French, uh, broken up into pieces, and then the select uh, strands mm -hmm. are then used for the treatment uh, so that it targets just the pain and doesn't become venomous or toxic. Wow. And it doesn't also uh, trigger um, a, a, a dependence on that okay. particular uh, drug. Um, now that said, if you're in acute pain, uh, it's usually something that you're going to need for an extended period of time, depending on your situation, uh, whether it's rehab or some other or some other purpose. That's bananas. I was just imagining yeah. some some guy being like, "Yo, man, I can't kick this cone shell." Going to his plug, and the guy being like, "That's going to be hard to get, man." Yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty, we've only discovered five percent of the ocean. Sing for Science is co-produced by TalkHouse and made possible in part by a grant from Science Sandbox, an initiative of the Simons Foundation. Stay tuned for other shows in our Best Of series and be sure to check out our other episodes. For more information, please visit singforscience.org and follow us on social media at Sing for Science. Thanks for listening.